Several weeks ago, I presented a sermon on the day of Pentecost from the book of Acts uh, chapter two. And in that message, we discussed in detail the arrival of the third person of the Godhead, Holy Spirit. And we covered how that day literally changed everything because it was really the, the launch pad, the birthing of the church of Jesus Christ. Now you may recall the following week, I did a message on faithfulness and how essential it is for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be faithful in all things. Then Pastor Anthony, two weeks ago, spoke and we honored our graduates. And of course, last week, I presented a message for our dads on Father's Day. But I want you to understand while all this was going on, I felt God leading me to continue on in the book of Acts. It's a very important book of the New Testament. And so that's what we're going to do. Today we are going to start, or should say, this is going to be sermon number two in a series on the book of Acts. Sermon number one being the sermon that you already heard four weeks ago on the day of Pentecost. And this morning we are going to look at an encounter that Peter and John had that involved a miraculous healing of a man who had been crippled since his birth. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter three. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or the uh, scriptures will be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. Today, I'll be reading the entire book of Acts chapter three, all the way through to chapter four, verses one through four, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Acts three, starting with verse one. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and now was made strong. 
It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now chapter four, verses one through four. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. You know, I have, uh, Lisa and I have greatly enjoyed watching the first three seasons of the made-for-television series called The Chosen. If any of you haven't seen that, it's a, it's a dramatic series about the life and ministry of Jesus. And I have to say that it has been presented in such a way that people who wouldn't normally take the time to read their Bibles are taking time to tune into this show, and it is changing people's lives. And this show offers uh, behind-the-scenes stories of the many different characters in the program, including Jesus' disciples. But another thing that this program has done well, it has done a good job at, at, I believe, presenting the attitudes and the beliefs of the people living in the culture of that day. And one of the things that comes through loud and clear is how the religious leaders who don't believe in Jesus always tried to discredit him. Everything he did or said was responded to with, with great piety and words like blasphemy, why they tore their robes for a more dramatic effect. But another thing is how they would often credit the miracles that Jesus had performed as acts of the devil, which interestingly enough is one of the definitions of blasphemy we were given in Bible college, attributing an act of God's power to Satan. But in addition to all that, history makes very clear that there were fake messiahs running around in those days. So you've got to understand that the people of that day, they, they were skeptics regarding anything spiritual, anything supernatural. I'm talking about any spiritual truth that was presented or any supernatural event like a healing from Jesus 
or his disciples anything that was outside of what they had previously experienced or been taught by the religious leaders. And so this event that we just read about would normally make the people doubt and it would make them question, was this a real life miracle? Was this in fact God at work or just one more of Satan's scheming through self-centered glory seeking people like these fake messiahs? Well, the manner in which all this happened as well as the people who were involved made it very clear that a miracle did indeed take place. And as we continue on studying the book of Acts, which is authored by Luke, and it is his written account of the early New Testament church, there are many instances like this one reported that helped to answer many of the questions that the people had as doubts were removed in their hearts and minds by witnessing the power of God being manifested and utilized by Jesus' disciples. And I know we've already read the text, but I wanna break it down a bit by providing you just a little bit of background and some more details to help you better understand what happened here. At this moment of time, it had been about one year since the day of Pentecost. And here in verses one, verse one in chapter three, we find Peter and John heading to the temple in order to pray. It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and the tense of the Greek uh, verb that is used here indicates that this was something that they did frequently. Like all devout Jews, it was the custom of these two constant companions to pray at the temple. In fact, Jews did this three times a day. How do we know that? Because in Psalm 55, 17, it mentions three hours of prayer, evening, morning, and noon. And just like Peter and John, most of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem took the teaching of this psalm very seriously. They came to the temple in the morning at 9 a.m., and then they would return back at 12 noon, and then they would return once again at 3 p.m. And I think it is interesting that Peter and John and the many members of the, of the early Christian church still kept these Jewish habits and customs that they had been taught since childhood. Kind of reminds me of what God says in Proverbs 22, six, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. But I also want to point out that during this third hour of prayer, the crowds would have been at their peak because it was also the time of the evening sacrifice. No doubt this is why in his great providence, God arranged for this miracle to take place at this particular time so that as many people as possible could be a witness to it. Now in his narrative, Luke tells, tells us about this beggar. He was a man who was over 40 years old who had been crippled or lame since his birth. Apparently every day his friends would carry him to the temple gates that Luke said was referred to in his day as the gate beautiful. It was probably the Eastern gate of the temple that led into the court of the women. And this particular gate was very ornate. 
It was made of Corinthian bronze that looked literally like gold when it was polished. And according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, the gate was so large that it took 20 men to open and close it, if you can imagine that. Well, this crippled man had been sitting and begging here in this same spot every single day for literal decades. This guy was a regular fixture at the entrance of the temple. Day after day, people saw him. And even Jesus himself probably had passed by this man many times before because he was in the, in the temple on many occasions. And I imagine that the disciples maybe wondered why he hadn't healed this man yet, like he had done with so many other people. But Jesus had his reasons for waiting. I also want you to note that the extent of this beggar's deformity was very clear to everyone. So it was obvious that this was a genuine healing. I mean, the people had, had frequented the temple. They would have known that there couldn't have been anything fraudulent about this miraculous healing because they've seen this man for decades. Now, the New Testament indicates that the beggars in Palestine favored three different locations. First, there was the houses of the rich. You remember the story of Lazarus? and the rich man. Secondly, was the main highways. You remember the account of the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10? And thirdly, was the temple gates, which is what we see here in Acts chapter two. But of the three locations, the gates of the temple were the very best location. Why? Because the people who came to the temple were in the mindset to impress God with their piety. And as such, they were more generous with beggars who were asking for handouts there more than anywhere else. Just like today, the closer people get to the church or to God's house, the more likely they are to practice their faith. I mean, we all know someone who acted like a Christian here on Sunday, but wasn't at all like a Christian when they leave here and go to work on Monday. But in any case, the temple was the prime spot for beggars to receive their alms, and this particular gate was the prime spot in the temple. Now you can't help but wonder how this particular crippled man was able to secure that choice piece of real estate. Perhaps he was related to some high-ranking Jewish official. Maybe his father put him there every day. We really don't know the backstory on how he always had that spot. But I want you to take Try to take a few, few moments and put yourself in this man's shoes. Put yourself in his position. I mean, try to picture in your mind's eye his situation. He has lived in despair for so long that this is normal to him. He can't go anywhere without any help. He relies completely on other people's handouts. His only purpose for living is survival. Being an invalid since he was born, he has never known a healthy day in his entire life. He's never stretched out his legs and, and walked to the market, never walked to a friend's house. In fact, his legs are just useless appendages. They are two perpetual reminders of the helplessness 
that he feels deep inside. Well, as Peter and John approach, this poor man was no doubt calling out the same words that he called out every day for decades, alms, alms for the poor. I'm sure this guy was a professional at catching people's eyes. After all, he had years to, to master his skills. In fact, his survival literally depended on it. Over the, over the years, he had no doubt learned that if you could catch the eye of a bystander, more often than not, the individual would probably give him at least a couple of coins because he was there at the temple. Well, he must have felt a, a surge of hope that day because when Peter, when he saw Peter and John coming, he called out to them and they responded. In fact, uh, Luke writes that they looked straight at him. Another translation says they fixed their gaze on him. They didn't avoid making eye contact like most of us do when we pass a homeless or a street person. No, they stopped and they stooped down and they looked this guy in the eye. In fact, the Greek word used here is the same that was used earlier in Acts chapter one when it described the disciples looking up into the skies intently while Jesus was ascending to heaven. Well, when they locked eyes with him, I'm sure that this man thought he was about ready to get a good-sized donation. But then in verse 6, Peter said what all of us usually say when someone asks us for money. Silver and gold I do not have. But unlike most of us, Peter was being truthful. What do I mean by that? In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that all the believers pooled their resources so that the collective needs of all could be met. So understand that those apostles had no money to give him. Their pockets were empty. But when you think about it, money isn't what this man needed, was it? So when Peter told him, silver and gold I do not have, I am certain that his hopes were dashed. Much like homeless people all over the world, whenever they see someone coming to them and they think they're gonna be given money, but when all they get is a tract or a business card or something like that. But just when he was feeling sad or maybe even angry at Peter's first words, he felt Peter take him by the hand. And he continues to talk to him by saying, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And Dr. Luke says that instantly this man was healed. I mean, the time that it took him to stand up, his tendons attached, his muscles grew, his bones straightened, and all of his sockets went into alignment. In short, Life literally filled this man's legs. And it was an amazing, incredibly powerful miracle. And please notice something else. This man didn't even need to be taught how to walk. Right? Babies have to learn to walk, right? This man hasn't walked a day in his life. And he gets up and he walks. He receive, receives his coordination and he receives his balance immediately, instantly. In fact, Luke says that he begins to leap. This reminds me of a prophecy in Isaiah 
35.6 where it says, then the lame will leap like a deer. His joy at being healed is so great that he couldn't just simply walk. No, he leaps and he dances into the temple all the while giving praise to the Lord God of heaven. Verse 11 seems to indicate that after dancing around in the temple for a few minutes, that he went back to where Peter and John were standing. And in his excitement, he took them by the hand and he pulled them into the temple court as well. And I'm sure if it happened to you, you would have been excited too, right? I mean, for the first time in his life, this man was able to go into the house of the Lord. For decades, he had been limited sitting on the outside looking in. At this moment, I'm certain that he lived and understood the meanings of the words in Psalm 122.1, where it says, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So with all this in mind, I want to go back to what I had mentioned earlier. I want to talk about how the people in that culture were often skeptical whenever the supernatural occurred. I mean, they were so shy to acknowledge a miracle. And again, this was based upon what the religious leaders had beat into their brains. They manipulated people in such a way that anything that didn't come from them couldn't be real. It it couldn't be from God. And when you combine that with the many counterfeit messiahs, as I said, that were running around and active in that day, you can begin to understand their skepticism. But this miracle based on who was healed, based upon who God used to perform the healing, as well as the results that followed, well, this just threw their skepticism right out of the window. There was no denying what had happened here. And so I wanna talk this morning about identifying a genuine miracle, as well as recognizing God's supernatural power, because I know in our culture, and sadly, even in the church, are skeptics. And I want to use this story this morning as the standard by offering you five identifiers of a genuine miracle from God. Five things that that will either help someone's skepticism or show how God works in situations and in people to bring about the miraculous. And so here's number one. True miracles are always done in the name of Jesus. In other words, a genuine miracle will point towards Jesus and never to the miracle worker. And that's exactly what Peter did here. He had made sure that the people who witnessed what had happened to this man who had been crippled since birth understood a very crucial point. The power to do this amazing thing came from Jesus and not from them or or him. You may remember when Peter delivered his first sermon on Pentecost, he had to refute the accusations that the believers were all drunk. Remember that? They thought they were drunk because they were speaking in all these different languages. Well, in this sermon, Peter has to refute the notion that he and John healed this man in their own power. In essence, he said, this kind of healing shouldn't surprise 
any of you people, because you've seen it before. You've seen it quite recently, in fact. Let's see, who was it that went around here performing miracles like this not too long ago? He was known far and wide for healing the blind and the lame. And then in verse 16, he answers his own question by saying this, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and known was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Peter told these people it was Jesus who healed this man. He said the fact that this beggar had been healed is actual proof that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. And it was Jesus' power that was obviously still at work here. The same healing power that they had seen repeatedly during his three years of ministry on the earth. People told the listeners that, that this miracle was proof that Jesus' heart was still pumping because his healing power was still available. So understand, Peter used this miracle as a spotlight for the redeeming power of the resurrected Christ and not to make himself or John look good. And, and what this tells me is that if an individual ever uses a miracle to point to themselves or, or to bring themselves glory, well, then you can be assured that it is a fake healing or a literal act of the devil because that's not the way God does things, nor is it a way that people respond who are being used by God. They give credit to God. And I've seen people take credit for healings. And it's a frightening and a very scary proposition. Here's number two, identifier of a true miracle from God. True miracles are a means to an end and not an end in themselves. What I mean by that is Peter's miracle was basically the introduction to his second sermon. Watching this man, who they knew to be lame since birth, is now leaping and running around the temple court. And that is what made the people in that temple that day want to actually listen to what Peter had to say. And he once again delivered the basic facts of the gospel to thousands of people who desperately needed to hear it. You know, one of the most important parts of a sermon is the introduction. And I usually try to create an introduction in the sermons I preach that will hopefully capture people's attention. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But here's the truth. You can have a great sermon, but if you don't have a compelling introduction that grabs people's attention, sometimes they won't take the time to listen to what you're going to say. And as I read this story, I've gotta be honest with you, I'm a bit envious. Because Peter has delivered two sermons so far in his preaching career, and both times God has provided the most incredible introductions you could ever imagine. His first message is when God sent the Holy Spirit. Wow. <laughs> Just wow. You talk about an introduction. Remember the loud wind? Remember the tongues of fire and flame that brought thousands of people literally rushing up to hear what all of these people had to say that were in the upper room? And now God has provided 
the power to heal a man that everybody was new, that everybody knew was crippled since birth. <laughs> wow, again. Sermon introductions don't get any better than that. I mean, who wouldn't listen after experiencing either of those two things? You see, this man wasn't just healed because of God's great compassion for his situation. He was also healed to give Peter the opportunity to proclaim the eternal truth of the gospel to thousands of people who really needed to hear it. You may recall I said earlier that it is possible that with all of Jesus' interactions in the temple, that, that he himself had seen this man begging on numerous occasions. I even suggested to you that perhaps the, the uh, disciples may have wondered why Jesus hadn't healed this man yet like he had done so many other times before. But I believe this helps me to make my point. This healing was a means to an end. And we see this same principle in many and most of Jesus' healings. He never healed people just to heal them, but rather to bring glory to God or to teach an important truth or to authenticate who he was. Think about it. Physical healing is temporary. You're going to say, well, what do you mean by that? Hear me out. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life after being dead for four days. But Lazarus still eventually died, just like you and I will all eventually die. But because Jesus did this, the people who were present were able to understand that he was and is the resurrection and the life. And they put their trust and they put their faith in him. Our Lord always performed his miracles in order to also impart an eternal truth. He healed people's bodies so that he would have a chance to heal their souls. And this reminds me of something that Amy Carmichael wrote. She said, one cannot save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. Souls are more or less securely fastened to bodies. And as you cannot get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. And that same principle applies today. When God in his great omniscience chooses to break his own laws of nature and intervene and do something that is supernatural, it always has an eternal purpose, like healing their soul. So remember, genuine miracles are, are always a means to an end and not just an end in and of themselves. Well, here's number three identifier of a true miracle. If we want to be a part of one of God's miracles, we must be interruptible. Think about it. Peter and John were on their way to pray in the temple. They could have very easily made the same mistake that the priest and the Levite did in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They could have simply ignored this poor man by using the excuse that they were on their way to commune with God. But Peter and John didn't do that, did they? No, they, they stopped. They were interruptible. They were open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they stopped and what they were doing to minister to this man. Pastor Rick Warren points out that most of Jesus' ministry and most of his miracles were basically interruptions. All the people he healed, the blind man, the lame man, the leper, the paralyzed man, the dead child, all of them 
were kind of interruptions to his day. His first miracle was an interruption at a, at a wedding reception. His second miracle was an interruption on his way to Galilee. Well, Peter and John are continuing on in this practice because they were interrupted on their way going to the temple. And what this tells us that, is that if we want to be a part of God's wonder-working power, we must be willing to be interrupted as well. To be a part of God's work in this world, we must be sensitive to, first of all, his still small voice when he says, stop, take a moment and help that person. There are millions of hurting people out there who are looking for us, those who call ourselves Christians, to do just that, to follow God's guidance, to tap into his power by stopping long enough to listen to a situation and try to help. I wonder how many miracles you and I have missed out upon because we simply didn't want to be interrupted. How many times has our hurriedness let us walk completely by a human need and in doing so, we missed out on being a part of God's wonder-working power? Sometimes we've just got to slow down. Sometimes we've got to take the blinders off and we've got to live in the moment and allow God to speak to us and allow God to use us, amen? Well, here's the fourth identifier of a true miracle of God. Sometimes the miracle that people need the most is not a physical one. As I said earlier, the effects of physical miracles in this fallen world that we live in they're temporary. So sometimes the miracle that people need the most is not a physical one at all. They need something that is more lasting. Tony Campolo once wrote this story. He said, I was in a church in Oregon not too long ago, and I prayed for a man who had cancer. In the middle of the week, I got a telephone call from his wife. She said, you prayed for my husband. He had cancer. I said, had, whoa, I thought, it's happened. This man has miraculously been cured. Then she said he died, and I felt terrible. She continued, don't feel bad, Mr. Campolo. When he came into that church last Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead in a short period of time, and he hated God. He was 58 years old. He wanted to see his children and grandchildren grow up. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away his sickness and heal him. He would lie in bed and curse at God. The more his anger toward God grew, the more miserable he was and, and to everyone around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence. But after you prayed for him, a peace came over him and a joy came into him. Tony, the last three days have been the best days of our lives. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture. We've prayed. Oh, they've been wonderful days. And I called to thank you for laying your hands on him and praying for healing. And then she said something incredibly profound. She said, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. I think that kind of helps put my point into perspective. The healing that this man needed the most was a soul healing and not a physical body healing. He was dying of cancer and God wanted him to be ready for that moment so that he could be in his presence when that time came. 
And this leads me to the final point that I want to make this morning. Number five, the greatest and most powerful miracle of all is salvation. Most amazing thing that happened on that day was not the crippled man's healing. As wonderful as that was, and that we're now talking about it thousands of years after the point. It was the healing of the thousands of souls who became Christians. And you know what? It's still that way today. The most powerful miracle ever is when a man or a woman or a child invites Jesus into their heart and into their life, when they have their sins washed away, when they are born again. You see, the truth is, all of us are born spiritually lame. What I mean by that is we're unable to walk in such a way as to please God. The Bible tells us that in a very real sense, our father Adam had a fall, and then he passed his lameness onto all of his descendants. You can read about that, by the way, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And like this beggar in Acts chapter 3, as sinners, we also are poor. In fact, we are bankrupt before God and unable to pay the tremendous debt that we should give him or owe him. And you can read about that in, in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. You see, this man... He was outside the temple. He was unable to come in, to go in. Well, as sinners, we are also outside because our sin separates us from a holy God. And when we repent of our sins and ask Jesus to forgive us, he does. And miraculously, our sins are washed away and we come into a personal relationship with God. Isaiah 55, five says, by his stripes, by his wounds, we're healed. And that, my friends, is the greatest miracle of all. I want you to listen to these lyrics of this song called, It Took a Miracle. My mom used to play this song on her record player when I was a kid. Some gospel quartet sang it. My father is omnipotent, of that you can't deny. A God of might and miracles, tis written in the sky. It took a miracle to put the stars in space. It took a miracle to hang the world in place. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. I'll say it again. Salvation is the most powerful miracle of all. The new birth is the truest healings of all, ladies and gentlemen. And having your sins forgiven, that's just downright power of God. Do you remember the time that those faithful friends of that paralytic broke a hole in the ceiling of the place where Jesus was teaching and they did so to lower their friend down to be closer to Jesus? Matthew's gospel says that when they did this, Jesus was impressed by their faith. And in Matthew 9, 2, he said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, this really ticked off, believe it or not, the religious leaders of the law. And Jesus knew this. So they said to him, and he said to them in Matthew 9, 5, and 6, which is easier to say, 
your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And he did. Jesus lays down the gauntlet here to all of these pious religious leaders who continually tried to discredit him. Number one, he's letting them know who he is. Number two, he's informing them of his authority to actually and literally be able to forgive sins. And number three, he is exhibiting his power to heal. Talk about setting things straight. I mean, the people knew these leaders, but they also knew that none of them could forgive sin. And none of them had the power to heal. No, they were just a bunch of learned men who were intoxicated by their own self-importance. So much so that they couldn't even recognize the promised Messiah as he stood right before them and exhibiting his supernatural power. It's a shame. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this thing down? I just want to say to you, my church family today, that Jesus is likewise laying the gauntlet down for us this morning. Through his written word, he is reminding us of who he is, and he is the son of the living God. He's reminding us of his authority to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he is also reminding us of his power to heal. And based upon this truth, I want to open this altar this morning so that we can spend some time in prayer with our all-powerful God. Maybe you are here today and you have some kind of a need. It could be a relational need. It could be a financial need. Those are all legitimate needs. And those are the kind of things you can bring to the Lord. But I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that the Lord wants you to first experience the greatest miracle of all. And that is the miracle of salvation. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to be in a committed relationship with you. The kind of relationship where you will seek him before you make decisions, before you make life-changing plans, before you do anything that lacks wisdom. Why? Because sometimes the needs that we come to God and pray for have been created through our own lack of knowledge. The lack of knowledge that we don't have because we're not in a relationship with him. What I'm trying to say is when you receive salvation, you are not only forgiven of your sins, but you also now have the spirit of God that resides within you, helping you, directing your life. So what I'm trying to say is without the forgiveness of sin, first of all, salvation doesn't happen. And when you're not saved, what happens is you pray for things yourself and you completely overlook the one who you're praying to because you don't understand his power because you're not in a relationship with him. But when you are in a right relationship with Jesus, you can go to him just like you would your earthly father and you can ask him about anything that you need and he is faithful to help you 
in your time of need. He may not answer your prayer the way you thought it would be answered, but he will walk you through that situation. He will give you strength and insight and wisdom and mercy to handle it, and you will come out the other side unscathed. But without a relationship with him, let me ask you, how can you pray with faith when you don't even know who it is that you're praying to? So if you'd like to be a part of a genuine miracle today, then when I invite you to come up here to this altar, ask Jesus to take away your sin, take away your shame, take away the bitterness that accompanies all that. He'll touch you in the spirit. He will not only remove the emptiness inside of you, but he will forgive you of your sin. Just ask him, invite him into your heart to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And it is then when you will be ready to seek him for specific areas in your life that truly do need his attention. Now, for those of you here who are already in a relationship with Jesus, maybe as we've studied this healing of this crippled man, you desire to be a part of a supernatural encounter like that. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Maybe God has laid upon your heart the desire to work with with hurting people in this church and in this community. Well, you can come to this altar and you can ask God to, to use your life. You can ask God to empower you to minister to the needs of hurting people. Ask him to work in and through you to help you to meet the needs of, of others. This is when you become a miracle for someone else. You can be a miracle. You can. Maybe you're here today and you need a healing in your body. And as we've been talking about this, you're thinking to yourself, that's what I want. That's what I desire. I've asked some members of our prayer team to come forward. In fact, why don't you guys and gals go ahead and stand up, kind of spread around the front of this place. God is still in the business of performing miracles. It didn't end with Jesus' ascension to heaven. And we see this through the miracle that we have studied here today. When Peter and John offered prayers, this crippled man was completely healed. Well, can I just tell you something? We have some Peters and Johns in this church. We do. They pray and God works through their prayers. And people have been healed in this church and they're gonna continue to be healed in this church. So as the worship team starts singing, whatever need you have today, whether it be salvation, whether it be you want God to give you a desire and the power to be a part of helping those that are hurting or whether you need a physical healing, I want you to come down to this altar. I'd like to ask if we can spread you guys out a little bit because I want to leave parts of this altar open so people can kneel. So let's just give us some bigger gaps here and work all the way around the front, all the way to that side. If you want to come and kneel, kneel. If you want one of us to pray for you for healing in your body, just walk up to them and they will pray for you. While the worship team sings, we're gonna spend some time in prayer. And when we're done, we'll close this service in prayer. Scott. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a 
drink from the well Jesus is calling Oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide forgiveness was born with the precious blood behind your regrets and mistakes
in a word of prayer. Those who are at the altar can stay as long as they would like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever as are you, that you are a God who heals, that you are a God who empowers, that you are a God of salvation. Everything that we need, Lord, is through you. Pray that we would lean into you discover who you are and grow in our faith, which means we will grow in great ways. And this world will no longer have any attachment on us because we know who we believe in. So God, I just pray that as we go our separate ways today, that your spirit would go with us, guiding our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations build people up and not bring them down. Father, let us shine as bright lights in a dark world. I pray that, Lord, just like Peter spoke and thousands came, I pray that when we speak, even if it's one, we'll come, that we can lead people to the cross of Jesus Christ and we can show them the way to salvation and they will receive you and become followers of Christ. Let us not forget that that is our purpose. So as we leave here today, Father, pray that you would go with us, remind us of that, and bring opportunities before us so we can let our light shine brightly. And as we go today, Father, I ask that you let us go in love. Let us love those who are unlovable and let us go in peace. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We just take a minute and praise the Lord. Let's raise our hands to heaven. Father, we thank you. We glorify your name and we worship you today. Come on, folks, you can pray. You can praise the Lord. Let it come forth from your mouth. Father, we glorify you, we worship you, and we praise you for who you are, for what you do. Thank you, Jesus. We praise your holy name. We praise you, we praise you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. You're dismissed if you wanna leave. If you wanna stay, feel free to stay. God's doing something here.